morning. Well, this past week I had a conversation with one of the guys in the church that uh, it's the kind of conversation that's really, for me, the, like in the top five favorite kind of conversations to have. And what it was is he called me to ask me to pray for him because he was meeting with a friend to share his faith in Christ. And as much as I love to do that, I, I love it even better when I hear someone else is doing it. It just, uh, it just uh, blesses my heart because I, I just believe in it so much. And what made this especially meaningful for me when this conversation is knowing that he had really uh, diligently spent 12 months learning how to be able to explain his faith to another person in a way that would be really understandable, would be very clear and, and, and compelling in, in, how, in how it's done. And if you, if, if you were to have a conversation with him about this, he would tell you that before he, he took the time and made the effort to prepare himself, he would, he would probably never have initiated a conversation like this that, that he did in this last week. And, he, and he would, he'd tell you that he, he just didn't have the confidence that he needed to be able to, you know, to be able to just talk through the whole thing of why we believe what we believe as believers. And so I love getting that phone call. It made my day. And I, I was excited for him to have this opportunity. And, and really what it did is, in fact, the, the fun thing was I was working on this Sunday's sermon as I, as I got that phone call. And it, it, the timing was perfect because it, it just motivated me that much more to prepare today's sermon. It was very confirming to me that what we're going to be, be doing beginning today and, and then the next four weeks is exactly the right thing for us to do. Because really, everybody, there isn't a greater privilege than to be able to talk with another person about our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's so important. It's, there is so much that is at stake in that person's life that, that, that I want every single one of us to be as prepared as we can possibly be to have those kind of conversations. And not only to explain who Jesus Christ is and, and, and why Jesus Christ came to this earth and what he did in coming to this earth, but also so that we're able to answer the questions that people so often have and need to have answered before, before they, they can even take that next step of considering whether or not they would, you know, even want to have a conversation about Christianity. And so I, I want this for every one of us. And what we're doing is really what the Apostle Peter challenged his fellow believers to do back when the church was beginning, when there was a lot of opposition, it challenged them to do in the third chapter of, of the first letter that he wrote. And he, he really had this right, the order right. He, first of all, he said, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And what he's talking about there is before we have conversations with other people, we got, we, got to, we got to make sure that we're walking the walk, that our spiritual life is authentic, that that people can see the character of Jesus Christ being formed in each one of us. Because that, that in itself gives a tremendous amount of credibility to, to the message that we share with other people. But it doesn't stop there. He went on and he said, always be prepared. And I, I love that. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then, and then I love how he finished it. And he said, but do this do this with gentleness and respect. And so that's what we're going to do today. 
And we're going to be doing it for the next four weeks. We're going to prepare ourselves to answer some of the questions that, that we're, we're asked when we talk about our faith in Jesus Christ with another person. And today we're going to begin with a question that, that, that I've been asked since I first began sharing my faith with other people back in my senior year of high school. And it, it, it's, it's not a question that I've always been asked, but I've been, I've been asked this question enough times so that more often than not, when, I, when I'm having a conversation with somebody, I, I won't assume that they believe this. And so I'll, I'll begin by talking about the existence of God, and the question really is, how do we know that there's a God? I mean, isn't it possible that, that everything can exist without there being a God who made it all? That, you, you might be asking that question yourself. You're at a point where you're undecided about your faith and about God, and, and you've, heard more, you've heard more than one person say that there's no reason to believe that there's a God, and so it's got, it, it's got you wondering. And I just want, I just want you to know, in, in, in my opinion, you're asking the right question. And I respect you for asking it. It's, it's an intellectually honest thing to do. And so my hope is that if you're asking that question, you'll find our time today helpful, right? So wherever you're at with God, and some of you uh, out here today, you've, you've, you've believed in Jesus Christ for as long as you can remember. It just goes back years. And, and then there's others where you're still exploring what to believe. In fact, that's why I love that explore group that we have because it's a great opportunity, a great place for you to ask those kind, the kind of questions that we're talking about today and next sun, in the next four Sundays. And so I'm hoping that you'll find today helpful and the next four Sundays helpful. I'm guessing that uh, quite a few of us in this room have gone to college or are in college right now. And it's likely, if you, if you have or if you're in college, it's likely you had or are having the same experience that I had during my years at the University of Minnesota, where I had classes with more than one professor who identified himself or herself either as an agnostic, where where they said, you know, there might be a God, but I don't think we can really know. I'm not really sure. Or they identified themselves as an atheist, and they, they, were, they were convinced that there isn't a God. And, I, man, I, I just remember those years. I remember, you know, just sitting and, and, and listening to them talk. And, 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 and I'm really thankful for the opportunity it gave me because it, it caused me to step back and, and, like, take a second look at my faith and really examine the thing all over again to make sure that, you know, can, is it really an intellectually honest thing to believe that there's, that there's a God, that there really is a God? And I just remember it's just, a, you know, I'm, I'm just so thankful for those four years at the university. What well, was during those same years that I decided to become a pastor? So you can probably figure from that that I, I ended up deciding, you know what, there, there really is a God, <laughs> you know. And, and, and so once I, once I finished college, I went on to a three-year graduate program at a seminary. And I got to tell you, you go to a seminary and you have a whole lot of classes about God, all right. I mean, that's just kind of a given when you, when you go to seminary, you're going to talk about God. Those were absolutely fascinating classes taught by some very intelligent 
very smart and highly educated professors. I mean, PhDs from some of the most respected schools in the world, schools like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Oxford. And so I'm very thankful for those three years. I mean, they, they were like, uh, I mean, they were, they were just fun, okay, and uh, very faith-building for me. One of my favorite classes was with a professor by the name of Norm Geisler. And, and, uh, and, where, and Dr. Geisler talked about, in this class, talked through with us four reasons or four arguments for the existence of God. Four, four, four arguments that, that have stood the test of, of time in defending the fact that there really is a God. And I, I, I got to tell you, it was, <laughs> it was like an absolutely fascinating class. Now, each one of these, these four arguments are powerful clues or pointers to the existence of God. Each one of them stand on their own. But when you put them all together, you, you, you absolutely have every reason to be confident that it's intellectually honest to believe that there's a God. All right? Now, I remember when I took, those cl took that class, uh, each one of these arguments had some pretty impressive sounding titles. Like the first one was the cosmological argument. And, and, and I, you know, I realize we're not going to probably remember words like that. You know? So I, what, I, what I wanted to do is I want to give you a, a phrase, like one or two or three words. I guess you've got to have at least two words for it to be a phrase. Two or three words that, that I think will be easier for you to remember Either, either if, you're, if you have a conversation with somebody else about your faith, or if you're asking the faith question, you can go home today and you can say, now, you know, what did that first one mean? And it, it, it'll help you, help you remember what I talked about. So here's the first one, uh, uncaused cause, all right? So you, you want to write that down, and it's, I think you got a kind of an interesting-looking bulletin this morning with some little diagrams or icons in there, right? Okay, the basic argument here is that there must be a cause for everything that exists. Choose anything you want. Whatever it is, including yourself, it has to have something outside of itself that brought it into existence. I mean, it's true. There, there's not a single thing in this whole universe that is totally independent where it's self-cost or self-reliant. In fact, in fact, it's obvious that what we see around us did not exist at a point in time and very likely will not exist forever. Now, when you were in high school or when you were in college, uh, you probably, you might remember a physical law that's called the second law of thermodynamics. And it states that everything in our universe is, is in a gradual state of entropy. It, it's, all, it's all slowly disintegrating. It, it's running out of usable energy. Okay, anybody relate to that, running out of usable energy? Yeah, you know, that, I mean, we, we, we all understand what that means, right? And the, the only person I think who doesn't is a two-year-old, right? I mean, it's like they make energy as they're, as they're going through the day, all right? Now... Since this is true, since the universe uh, is today and always has been finite, it hasn't existed forever, and it won't 
exists forever into the future, what that means is that the universe must have had a beginning. Right? Make sense? In fact, one of the, one of the interesting things about this, to show us that science is always, always learning, always learning, one of the interesting things about this is that as recently as the first decades of the 20th century, that's the last century, we're in the 21st century, Back in the 20th century, in the first decades, most scientists believed in the eternity of the universe, that it always existed. That's what they believed. But this changed in the 60s, back in the, toward the end of the, of the 20th century. In fact, during the years I was, I was in high school, this all changed when it became increasingly clear through, through you know, all those telescopes that got, you know, were able to look further and further out in space, it became increasingly clear to scientists that the universe had an origin, that it had a beginning. And the word that, that's often used to describe this is the Big Bang, if, you, if you've heard that, the Big Bang, right? So that's an accepted fact right now. You don't have any scientists who say that the universe always existed. They accept the fact that it had a beginning. And, and so that forces the question, who or what is ultimately responsible for everything that exists? Who's responsible? Now, let, let me illustrate it this way. And this is, a, this is a fun thing that any one of us can do in having a conversation with somebody. You could take a piece of paper and you, you could draw a circle. It's just so memorable, such a, such a good, clear way to explain this. So let's say, let's say that you could take yourself outside of the universe, all right? And, and you drew a circle around everything that exists in the universe, all the stars and galaxies, all the planets, including Earth itself, even the space between all of the planets, all the galaxies, between all of that, okay? Everything's inside that circle, all right? Now, remember that everything inside of this circle is dependent on something else for its existence. Remember that everything in this circle is finite. It began at a point in time, and, it, and it's working toward non-existence. It's, it, it, it's slowly headed toward a point where it's not going to be around anymore. Now, the big question, okay, is this. What caused all this stuff in the circle to come into existence in the first place? And there's really only two answers to that question. Either everything in the circle was brought into existence by something in that circle, or everything in the circle was brought into existence by something outside of the circle. Okay, you all with me on this? All right, now. The question, really the question to ask yourself and to answer. It's a very simple question. Which one makes the most sense? If everything inside the circle is dependent on something else for its existence, and if everything in the circle is finite, that it will ultimately not exist anymore, how reasonable is it to locate the ultimate cause or the first cause of everything inside the circle, inside the circle itself. Right? Now, those who hold to the 
cosmological argument would answer that it doesn't make any sense at all, that it, that it would be inside the circle. All right? Any thinking person would conclude that the answer for everything that is, exists inside the circle is outside the circle. And they're saying, they say there must be something outside the circle that's not dependent on anything else for its existence, something that is absolutely self-cost and self-reliant. It doesn't depend on anything, which they point out would make it eternal, unlimited and infinitely powerful and, the, and then they say so now what we're describing are the attributes of who? God, right? That's a powerful argument for the existence of God. In fact, one of the things, uh, one of the classes I took was another class by Norm Geisler and it, the, the whole class was based on this, this one argument a fun thing is, is Dr. Geisler got his PhD in philosophy at a secular university, at the University of Illinois, defending the existence of God on the basis of this one argument. And he did it with this statement. I just love it. It's, it's God is the uncaused cause of everything that exists. I just, I think that's a brilliant statement. Okay? You want to write that down. God is the uncaused cause of everything that exists. So that's exactly what the Bible teaches. For example, the Bible began in the very first verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I love what Paul wrote in the book of Colossians in the New Testament where Paul is writing about Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And he said, for by him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created, all things, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, what, what we can see with the naked eye and what we can see. He said, all things were created by him and for him. He is, he is before all things. And then I love the end of this. Not only, not only were we created by Jesus Christ, by God, but, but it says, it's also true that in him all things hold together. So the very fact that you and I continue to exist it's because of God holding us together. He holds this whole universe together. Now, I'll, I'll tell you what that does for me. I mean, uh, first of all, just the reality. I, I, I ask myself the question, and it's such a logical answer. What makes more, more sense? That there was nothing, and then somehow there's everything? Or that there was, there was nothing, and that there was a creator God who made it all? Okay? And I, I've... I'm over here, and you know what it does for me is it makes me go like, God, wow, you know, just so incredible, you're so amazing. God, to think that at one point in eternity, it was only you, God, and then you decided to create the universe, and, and, and you did it. That's like, wow. You know? Now, that's argument number one. The second argument, or clue, to God's existence points to the design of the universe and it says that it only makes sense, it only makes sense that there's a designer and that this designer is God himself. And so the two words you want to write down are design and designer. And it asks the question, who is responsible for the intricacies 
the symmetry, the coordination, and the purposefulness of all that we see in creation. And it asks the question, and it challenges the theory that everything we see around us came into existence by chance. All designs, they say, imply a designer. And there's a great design in the universe, therefore, there must be a great designer in the universe. Now, I can't tell you the number of times, and I, it could be sitting in a restaurant, it, it could be, you know, sitting in our house, it could be talking with, with, with a neighbor, and where I've ended up having a conversation where we're talking about this whole, the, this whole thing, is there a God or isn't there a God? And I, so many times I've taken off my watch, and I, I've said, you know, watches are amazing, aren't they? You know, wouldn't it be something if you, you know, you take off the back of a watch and you, you look at it and, and you see all these tiny, intricate parts to a watch. And, and, and I said, really, what makes more, more sense to you? That, that somehow, you know, uh, all that happened by chance or, is it, or that there's a watchmaker? What's the most logical? And, I mean, every time I get the, the answer that there's a watchmaker. I mean, you can do this with anything. I mean, go home today, and uh, anybody have like a television you've spent a little bit of money on and maybe a large screen? Go home today and take that baby apart, okay? I mean, just, just take the back off and look inside and, 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 or, or do it with your computer. Or if you, if you just happen to get a new iPhone, do it with your iPhone. Just take that baby apart and look at it and, and ask yourself the question, what makes more sense that that, that, that that television, that computer, suddenly, you know, happened by some kind of an explosion in a factory somewhere? Or that there was, there, there was a designer that made, that put it all together, every single part that makes it work. And I, I think, you know, where I conclude on that. If you conclude that it must, it must have had a designer, then you understand the argument for the existence of God. It, it simply says that God alone can account for the complex and amazing universe in which we live. Now, how many of you uh, have ever heard of Charles Darwin? Anybody? Okay, what's he famous for? Evolution, right? He was popularized evolution. Other people believed it, but he's kind of took the lead in it. In a chapter entitled, and I love the title of this chapter, Organs of Extreme Perfection and Complication. All right, good title. From his book, the book Origin of Species, it was written like 150 some years ago, okay? This is what he said, all right? This is what he said. He said, to suppose that the eye, the eye, with so many parts all working together, could have been formed by natural selection. Natural selection is the whole thing that he developed, the, the whole that has to do with evolution. He said, let me start over again. To suppose that the eye with so many parts all working together could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. So let's talk about the eye for a minute. I thought it'd be kind of fun to do that, and, and I thought, how, uh, who better to hear about an eye than from an eye doctor, right? And so I asked Kyle Cheatham, uh, uh, who's an eye doctor, 
In fact, <laughs> about last night at six o'clock. <laughs> yeah, about six o'clock last. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle had given me a bunch of a bunch of information about the eye, and in fact, we were working out, and I was trying to process it at all, and Kyle was trying to help me get it, and I, and I, I you know, I, I'd suggested earlier in the week that you right, might do you this, did, you did. and then, and then. Finally, when you heard me on the phone yesterday, and like, I'm trying to say this in a way, you know, we, Kyle was good to say he'd be willing to help us out. So tell us a little bit about the eye, all right? Okay. Well, I think one of the great things about this quote, first of all, is I'm going to try and simplify things with the eye really, I'm trying to make it really easy to understand. But if you don't remember any of it, I think one of the really cool things is this quote um, by Darwin was written over 150 years ago, right? And so... What's interesting about that is what we know now about the eye is so dramatically more significant than what we knew then. I mean, what we knew then was like this much compared to now to a point where last year I was going to bed around 10 o'clock at night and I got this text and I looked at it, I thought it was a joke. It was a Facebook um, alert that said that they discovered a new layer of the cornea. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. There's only five layers. You know, there's a sixth layer now. I mean, so now they're saying there's a, I know you guys are on the edge of your seats with stimulation. I, on this, I got that too. I was so excited. I call my, yeah, I call them my there's, friends. There, yeah. I mean, just the, the way things are changing is dramatic, even in the last 10 years. So I would love to hear what he would say now compared to what, what we know now compared to then. It's yeah. dramatic, the difference. But yeah. just to, to really make this simplified, um, when we think about the eye, we can think of it, I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but just kind of three main layers. The cornea is the layer that in the front of the eye that we touch, right? So if you've had LASIK surgery, that's the layer that, that gets interrupted with LASIK, right? The lens, which is in the center of the eye, right? That's what gets cataracts, for example, right? So the cornea is in the front. That's what you touch. The lens in the middle. And then the back layer would be the retina, okay? So if we just looked at those three only and just, just thought about this for a second, okay? What's really amazing to me is if we just look at the cornea by itself, the number of things that have to happen right in the cornea is in the hundreds of thousands for us right now to even be looking up here, seeing us clearly. Every one of those things has to happen perfectly. And that's just the cornea. And if one of those is disrupted, we can't see. An example, just a, uh, a quick one. Um, if, if you guys touch up here on the upper portion of your, of your eyelid, so when you see kids like flip their eyelids and you see that yucky stuff, but up here in the corners of your eyelid on each side, right, if you look up there, there's a little gland up there called the lacrimal gland, and it produces our tears. And most of us, when we think about the front layer of our eyes, the tears, we think of it as just kind of like water on the front of our eyes. But it's actually a ton of different things, and water is part of that, right? But one of the things that's in our lacrimal gland that it pumps out every day, so right now as you're watching this, the, the lacrimal gland is pumping this out. And remember, it's one of many things, is vitamin A. Okay, and in, in third world countries, one of the main reasons why people go blind in third world countries, everything else in their eyes perfect, okay? But one thing is missing, vitamin A, because their diets don't have it. And so they go blind because of that one element, and that's just in the tears alone. And so everything has to, the way we're designed, it all has to work. The next one, just a simple one, let's just look at the cornea, the front layer that we touch on the front of our eye, okay? Now, Steve, I want to have you come up and just help us with this for a minute, okay? So the cornea, as you guys know, as we already talked I'm about, a, has... I'm a cornea? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to have you be like the eyelid or something. Oh, actually. okay. I'll be the eyelid. <laughs> I'm okay. kidding. Yeah. So All the right. cornea, we said, has six layers, but let's just simplify it and say there's, there's three, just to make it easy to understand. The front layer right here would be just the front of the cornea, the back of the cornea, okay? And then there's a layer in between, okay? This layer in between um, is really important. You can, you can relax, Steve, okay? So this layer in between is called the corneal stroma, okay? I won't bore you with the details, but basically this area has what's called collagen and water in it. And the collagen has to be lined up 
perfectly. I mean, like that, okay? And there's thousands of these individual units, and these individual collagen units have to be exactly the same. If one is bigger than the other, you don't see. If the collagen gets dislodged a little bit, you don't see, okay? It's, it's amazing. But what allows this to work is that there has to be water in here that aligns it perfectly. And they came up with a number a few years ago after a lot of experiments that said, you know what percent the water has to be to allow you to see? The answer was 78%. If the water content is 79%, the collagen gets messed up and you go blind. If it's 75%, it gets messed up. So the level of precision of that is just has to be dead on perfect, right? And that's just in the cornea alone. Um, the last one that I think is really fun to talk about is the retina, which is the inner lining of the back of the eye, okay? And uh, the retina, I don't know if you guys have, have thought about that or heard much about it, but the retina actually has 10 layers total, okay? And just to illustrate this, I want to have some fun, and I... Mike Meeks, can you stand up for me, sir, in the middle, okay? And then uh, uh, Chris in the back, can you stand up for us, okay? So Chris, can you wave your hand so everybody can see you? Okay, so Chris would be the front layer of the retina, and I would be the back layer, and Mike would be in between, okay? So when light comes into the eyes, a lot of you guys have heard about the rods and the cones, right? Have you ever heard about rods and cones? <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> Trying yes, to help you out. You I don't... did this week, <laughs> okay. but I did, didn't know about it. All right, so there's rods and cones. So when light comes into the eye, the rods and the cones collect the light. But one thing that's really interesting is that every day, when you guys wake up tomorrow, you'll have new rods. You'll have new cones. So constantly, this is, I, mean, I, I used to think before I was an eye doctor, like you just wake up one day and you have a cornea and your eyes and stuff, and you look around and you see, and maybe you got that at birth, and then nothing ever changes, and you hope and pray to God that everything stays the same and you see well, right? But all throughout the day, your rods and your cones are changing to a point where you get brand new ones the next day. So when light comes in, the rods and the cones get it. They send it to Mike, which is the middle layer, and Mike sends it to Chris. And this happens, just to see right now, when you guys are looking at us right now, that happens 1.8 million times for us to be able to see. So constantly it's going boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. All throughout the day, that allows us to see. So if I get messed up, like in macular degeneration, for example, if I get messed up, one thing, I don't see. You know? And so every one of those, and by the way, this is just the retina, right? So we looked at the tears, the cornea. So it's a millions of interactions all throughout the day where if one of them is disrupted, we don't see. Like a person who sleeps in their contact lenses, they can't see because all of a sudden there's too much fluid in the cornea. So have you ever done that before and you wake up and your vision's blurry and maybe it was really sore and you went to the doctor? But let's just use a simple one where you woke up and you wore your contacts and it was blurry. And then all throughout the day it got clear. You know why it got clear? Because the cornea was pumping all that water out because it knew it needed to get to 78%. That's amazing. The last thing I want to mention about this is this process, the last point, between t from me to Mike to the back of the room, right, that, that process in the cornea. If we could stand over here outside of Brookside and we could watch it and we could say, wow, boom, boom, boom. We could watch this happen 1.8 million times and we could watch that. And then we looked at it. Do you know how thick that is in the cornea? Like if you could look at it from the side, the size of the retina where this is happening 1.8 million times, is, is, it's thinner than a piece of saran wrap. That's what's happening 1.8 million times. Those individual cells, all of them happen to fire perfectly and precisely for us to be able to see an image that we can appreciate every day. Hmm. So um, when I think about the stuff Steve's talking about today, the different reasonings, I, th I think they're awesome. I mean, it's fun to go through them. Um, but to me as an eye doctor, you know, when I know that, um, it's, that alone blows my mind to a point where um, it's just really hard for me to imagine yeah. um, you know, trying to, trying to rationalize this stuff without someone designing it so precisely. Yeah. It's just amazing to me. It is amazing. Incredible. Oh. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks. Thanks a lot.
You know, and, and to realize that's just one part of our body. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just think of what the eye makes possible. That, you know, to be able to <laughs> watch football last night or watch the World Series last night, to be able to enjoy it. You know, to be able to, to, to see a child do something, your own child or someone else's, something that's so absolutely cute, you know, just delights your heart. Or, or th this fall we've had, it's been just spectacular, the colors because of the, you know, right amount of rain and the temperatures and all that. And, I mean, just think, to be able to enjoy those kinds of things on a daily basis because God created the eye and God, I mean, made it work the way it works that, like Kyle said, God has, did this way, way back, and we're just still discovering how it works. And it makes you realize, doesn't it, how infinitely great and wise that God really, really is, right? So there's a third argument. So that, that second one is design, designer. The third argument is what's called the moral argument, or the, way I, the word I'm using for this here is morality and that we have a longing for justice. And so this argument asks the question, how does one account for the fact that in, in, in human beings everywhere, all over the world, there, there's a kind of a moral code that provides people with an inner sense of right and wrong, so where we have this longing for justice. And so the, the, the little symbol that, that I'm using for this to help you remember is, you know, that, that, that represents the, the, you know, the right and the wrong and justice, justice prevailing. Now, if we simply evolved without there being any God from primeval ga gases, okay, how does one account for the fact that in almost every culture on this planet, people value truth-telling over deceitfulness, kindness over violence, and loyalty over backstabbing? See, I think it's very difficult to imagine that a moral code of values in people throughout this world could have come about by chance. It, it's only logical, I think it's only rational to conclude that it came about through a supreme moral being. I got to tell you about a book that I read way back in college, and if you haven't read it yet, I'd say it's, man, it's like a must read. It really is. It's, you, know, you all heard of C.S. Lewis, right? Uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Well, he wrote this book called Mere Christianity, which defends the existence of God on the basis of this, of this moral argument. It's just a great book. And, I mean, you read that and you learn way more than you learn here from me in just, just a few minutes. Okay, the fourth argument for God's existence is this, and that's that there's worldwide belief in God. And it states that because... The concept of God is worldwide. God must have placed the idea within, within man. It, it, it rests on the fact that, that all men everywhere have an, an awareness of God, a belief in God, right? And so the little symbol there to help you remember this is the world. Now, it's kind of interesting for me reflecting back on this. Back when, in, um, when I was in college, 1969 to 1973, there was around that period of time, it was about 10 years, where there, was, there, were, there were a lot of questions put out there. Is there really a God? Do, do we really have to, does there really have to be a God for this universe to exist? And, and uh, I, re, I remember, 
I remember Time Magazine having a front cover with the title, God is Dead. There was all the talk about there's no God, God is dead. And, and then this idea seemed to disappear. And you weren't hearing much of this anymore. All through the 80s and the 90s and the first 10 years, even of, of the 21st century. And now I've noticed again in, the, in, this, in these last few years, this idea of no God is, is, surfing again, is surfacing again. And you, you, uh, you, know, you can read up in, where you, you you're kind of get the impression that more and more people are becoming atheists. But you know what the reality is? It's still a very brief period of time when compared to the long history of mankind. And it's still limited to a very small number of people when put up against the entire population of our world. I mean, you can, you can go from one nation to another, and by far the vast majority of people believe in the existence of God. Now, their ideas of God are very different, but they do believe that there's a God. And that's consistent with the way that it's been throughout human history. And so those who hold to this argument say that that one reason might not stand, you know, just alone itself, but you combine it with the other three reasons, and, and, and it, it becomes a very strong argument for the existence of God, okay? An awareness of a being that's infinitely greater than ourselves. So, four convincing reasons, I think, to believe in the existence of God. And so we, we must honestly ask ourselves these questions. What is the cost of everything that exists? Does it make more sense that there was nothing and then suddenly, somehow, there's everything? Or to be believe that there's a God who's the uncaused cause of everything that exists? Second question, who designs, who, who, who designed this incredibly complex and amazing universe? Does it make more sense to believe that all of it came about by chance or that there was a designer, an infinitely great designer be, behind it all? And, uh, you know, that whole circle thing, it only seems logical that there has to be something, someone outside of that circle who creates everything inside the circle. Okay, and that's God. Third question, why is there a sense of right and wrong in people everywhere? I, I look at that question, and it only makes sense to me that there would have to be an infinite God who would place that moral sense of right or wrong within us. And you know what's really fun? Read the first chapter of Romans, and that's what Paul talks about. And then the last question, what about the fact that people have always believed in God? And, and so you might turn that question around and say to yourself, how could so many people be wrong? You know, this whole idea of God that, that people down through all of history have, have believed that, okay? Now, let me just, let me just add this, uh, and, I, and, I, and then I'm done. And then we're going we're gonna to celebrate uh, the baptism of someone who looked at all of this and made a decision one day, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. But if you're here today, and boy, you're asking, you're asking a lot of questions, and one of those questions is, you know, does there really have to be a God? Does God really exist? This explore group that, we, that we're doing uh, that's, that will start next Sunday again, that's a great place for you to ask those questions. And, and you could just, when you go out this morning, there's a, a, a welcome center room that kind of goes back in, and uh, you can st stop and talk to somebody and, and ask them 
about the class. In fact, the people there are people who've gone through the class. They've, they've asked the questions, and, and the fun part is they, at the end result of asking all the questions and looking at the answers, they made the decision, yeah, I believe. Um, so you might enjoy having a conversation with them. Okay, let's, um, let's watch this. I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it, and I know you will. All right.